Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, October 29th, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com. And joining me on today's episode are Slash Film writers, Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. All right, guys. So uh, we are delaying our normal water cooler Monday episode until tomorrow, I think, uh, based on the way people are feeling right now and how things are shaking out. So we have a bunch of news items that we wanted to, t- to talk about today. And uh, first up, HT, let's talk a little bit about how Halloween is performing at the box office. Give us the latest. Yeah, so this weekend, Halloween raked in an ep- estimated $32 million domestically, bringing its domestic total to $126 million, um, with the chance to shoot for the coveted $200 million mark, which is huge for a domestic horror film, especially an R-rated horror film. And I say that because Halloween may uh, get the second big- highest spot after it as the highest grossing R-rated horror film um, in in history. So that's quite exciting. Um, internationally, it's no slouch either. It's recently made its international total to be 45.6 million with a grand total of 172 million globally. That is uh, pretty impressive. Um, Chris, what do you make of the way that Halloween has been received so far? I know you're a fan of the movie. You saw it at a film festival a while back. Um, sort of Uh, Watching this from the outside, looking in, um, do you think there are any larger trends here uh, in terms of like the industry and and how horror is being received? Um, I mean, I I think the lesson here is uh, people want horror in October. Um, For some reason, studios don't realize this. I don't know why. I mean, for a long period of time, the Saw movies had the October market cornered and there was like a new Saw movie every Halloween. And, you know... Paranormal Activity tried that too, but that sort of died out. But people want to see horror movies in October. And there's also just a, you know, a legacy element to it. I mean, the fact that, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis is back and it's the first Halloween sequel in a long time. Like Hollywood always takes the wrong (laughs) info from when things become popular. So I know they're going to screw this up, but for (laughs) for now, 
I'm happy. I'm very happy this is doing so well. It's funny and you say HD... that, Chris, because I always thought that more horror movies were released in like the fall and October, but maybe you're speaking about like franchise movies in general, or is it just like maybe I'm just kind of associating it with the fall because that's how I see it, but maybe I I haven't seen a lot of – I feel like there's a lot of horror movies that come out in the, in the fall. I, I, I think you're just assuming that because it seems like it should happen, but that it really isn't the case. Like mm-hmm. I can't even remember – what came out last October. So even if stuff comes out, it's usually junk. So it's, it's not a great, I don't know why they haven't figured this out, but there should be like a ton of horror movies hitting the, like I was saying like overlord is coming out in November. That's so stupid. Like that movie looks like the perfect Halloween viewing experience. Like why isn't that coming out this month? I don't get it. I wonder if it has anything to do with like the low budgets of uh, or the comparatively low budgets of a lot of these horror movies, because in my memory and Chris, please correct me if I'm wrong. A lot of the sort of low budget horror stuff tends to come out at the beginning of the year in like those dumping ground months where there's not really a lot of competition from other studios. So maybe it's like a positioning thing where that's like, you know, the the numbers say the analytics say that maybe that's their best bet for like uh, being able to make their money back on on smaller horror films like that. Yeah, that's true. Uh, January is usually a, a dumping ground for really crappy. <laughs> like that movie, The Boy, came out in January, and uh, the movie with um, oh, I can't remember what the hell it was called. It was like The Woods or something. It had that actress from Game of Thrones in it, and it was Natalie. Re- oh, uh, the Forest. Dormer. Yes, Natalie Dormer. Yeah, that was so bad. And that came out in January, so that's usually like where they dump them. But you know, trends are changing, and. You know, it, it's like the summer movie season. Like for a long time, people thought blockbusters only belong in the summer. And now we're finding like that's not the case anymore because everything is a blockbuster now. So stuff is coming out in like April. And then now April is considered the summer movie season. So it's just trends are changing. Yeah. And let's and, not forget that um, Get Out came out in January as well. But I think they probably underestimated that film and how big of an impact it would make. Oh, for sure. And uh, HT, I know we did a big um, Halloween themed episode last week that you weren't on, but I know you had a lot to say about that movie. And I think most of it is probably spoiler related, but I did want to know, what do you think about the possibility of a sequel to Halloween? Is that something that you are interested in uh, on a creative standpoint? I don't. I'm not particularly interested in a sequel just because I thought that film so well wrapped up the legacy of Laurie Strode and felt like a good end point for that franchise. It it was both like an homage to the original film, but also took it into the 21st century in a way that felt refreshing and not too incredibly hokey. And um, yeah, I feel like if they tried to continue it from there they would have to do something drastically different. I know some people were theorizing that maybe Lori's daughter, whose name I can't remember right now, or uh, sorry, Lori's granddaughter, not Judy Greer, because Judy Greer is great. Um, but uh, Lori's granddaughter, like somehow maybe becomes traumatized by this experience and becomes like the new Michael Myers or something like that, which I don't think I would like either, <laughs> to be fair. So yeah. Um, yeah, I think that this would be a good place to end the franchise, but knowing Hollywood, I don't think that will happen. Yeah, especially if this is on track to become the biggest R-rated horror movie uh, after it. So um, we'll we'll await the news of uh, the inevitable news of a Halloween sequel coming up. Uh, in the meantime, though, let's talk about our next news item, and that is uh, some new information about the uh, Boba Fett movie that I think last week we talked about is not happening. 
Uh, but now we have some information about what that movie could have been like. Chris, tell us about that. Uh, yeah, so the Boa Fett movie was originally going to be directed by Josh Trank, um, uh, who, of course, directed uh, Chronicle and then Fantastic Four. And Fantastic Four did very poorly at the box office and with critics, and there were all these rumors that Josh Trank was very unprofessional on the set, and that more or less led to him being uh, fired from the Boba Fett movie. Um, he claims he left on his own, but it's, it's like a poorly kept secret that Lucasfilm basically fired him. And he was really close to starting. Um, I didn't know this, but in researching the story, I found out that he was supposed to debut an actual teaser trailer for the Boba Fett movie at the Star Wars celebration. And at the very last minute, he didn't go to the celebration, probably because he knew he was getting fired. And, you know, they, they scrapped that teaser. Uh, so that was in 2016. By 2018, which is this year, uh, James Mangold, who directed Logan, was announced as the new director. And we thought, all right, that now it's going to finally happen. And then Lucasfilm uh, pulled the plug on all their Star Wars anthology films following uh, Solo, which didn't do as well as they were hoping. And so now, um, uh, last week, Kathleen Kennedy confirmed that the Boba Fett movie is completely dead. So it's definitely not happening. But now we know a little bit more about what it would have been had it happened. Uh, in The Empire Strikes Back, there's a scene where Darth Vader uh, recruits not just Boba Fett, but a whole slew of bounty hunter characters to track down uh, Han Solo. I mean, Boba Fett is the most famous of them, but... There, there's a whole bunch and they all have their own names, which I didn't know because I'm not a damn nerd. So I had to, uh, <laughs> I had to, I had to look it up for this piece, but they all have really elaborate names. They all have a really elaborate backstory. Some of which were fleshed out in comics. Some of which were fleshed out in the, the clone wars animated series. So the film was going to be Boba Fett and all these bounty hunters. Um, we don't know what the plot would have been, but we just know they all would have been in it together. But now it's it's definitely not happening. So, Chris, now that you're a nerd by proxy, having been forced to uh, to look into this stuff to write up this article, is this something that you would have been interested in seeing had Lucasfilm gone ahead with a Boba Fett movie? I really don't know. I mean, I'm of the mind that Boba Fett is a really lame character, and I've never got why people love him so much. I guess it's just because his armor is really cool, but in in the Star Wars proper films, and I'm talking about the original trilogy he doesn't do anything. He's, he's in like two scenes and he falls into a pit and dies. And for, <laughs> but for some reason people love him. And I, I've just never really bought into that for some reason. So I'm not exactly, I wasn't exactly thrilled about this idea. I mean, I, I like James Mangold. So that sort of interests me, but I'm not going to lose any uh, sleep over this not happening. I wonder how much of Boba Fett's um, like the iconography and the popularity of that character came from like the toy line and kids playing with toys and and sort of creating their own stories for that character. Because you're right, like he really doesn't do much um, in the actual movies. But HG, what what are your thoughts about Boba Fett and uh, and a, a movie or this version of a, a movie that never will be? I also thought Boba Fett was super dumb when I I saw him in the. Um, um... Return of the Jedi, yeah. Empire Strikes Back, one of those. Was yeah, he was in both, but yes. briefly. Yeah, and I just remember him, like, hilariously, like, falling into the sand pit. And that was the, the most memorable part I had, remember, memory I had of him. Uh, I don't understand his popularity, and I was very happy when that movie got canned. Um, but from what it sounds like, from what Chris is describing, it kind of sounds like Disney or Lucasfilm was trying to do their own version of Suicide Squad uh, with Boba Fett at the center 
um, you know, cast of colorful characters and everyone having their own distinct personalities. So uh, I don't know if that would work out. It could be like the the cosmic space romp that Guardians of the Galaxy was, or it could be the mess that Suicide Squad was, but we'll never know now. Yeah, I remember reading a couple years ago how Lucasfilm was having some trouble cracking the code of Boba Fett because he's supposed to be like kind of a bad guy, like a bounty hunter, uh, anti-hero character. But they also wanted him to lead this movie and they didn't want audiences to have to root for a bad guy. So it, it sounds like they had a lot of different ideas here and they couldn't quite find something that that actually works. So they ended up just scrapping the whole thing. And of course, uh, as we talked about last week, um, I, I don't know if Boba Fett, uh, that specific character is going to appear, but certainly Mandalorians are going to appear in John Favreau's uh, original Star Wars show that he's working on for the Disney streaming service. So uh, people have that to look forward to um, sometime next year when that service uh, platform launches. Um, in the meantime, let's talk about Avatar 4 and 5. These movies are actually already filming, apparently, according to Sigourney Weaver. So about uh, about this time last year, James Cameron, who directed the first Avatar, which came out in 2009, guys, it's, it's been almost 10 years since the first Avatar came out. He said, let's face it, if Avatar 2 and 3 don't make enough money, there's not going to be a 4 and 5. They're fully encapsulated stories in and of themselves. It builds across the five films to a greater kind of meta narrative, but they're fully formed films in their own right. So we, we've been under the impression for the last year that... Avatar 2 and 3 are happening because production was underway on those and, and has been for quite some time. But we were sort of thinking, oh, maybe Avatar 4 and 5, let's assume the worst for that franchise and assume that nobody wants to go see an Avatar movie anymore. And those movies do terribly. James Cameron has basically said those Avatar 4 and 5 aren't going to happen. But according to a new interview with Sigourney Weaver, she said that uh, they just finished shooting 2 and 3. And she, uh, her exact quote was, uh, I'm busy doing Avatar 4 and 5. So that makes it seem like she's actually working on it right now, not just like, oh, in the future, I'm going to be busy doing this thing. She's spoken the present tense, like, I'm actually working on this. So uh, I guess, I don't know if James Cameron's plans have changed and, and maybe the production timeline moved up a little bit. Um, Guys, we're in this weird space right now where, like I said, it's been almost 10 years since the first Avatar and excitement for the sequels is probably, I, mean, I don't know if it's at a low point, but it's certainly not like uh, the Internet is not in a frenzy uh, about uh, Avatar sequels at this point. I, I feel like we're in this weird stage where five years from now, we could be looking on this, looking back on this as like the dark times when we didn't have any Avatar movies. But of course, you know, Fox and Disney are going to be just like throwing one after the other at us for years after this, especially since Disney is going to be acquiring this franchise at the beginning of next year. Uh, how, how do you guys, what's your temperature on the Avatar franchise right now? All these little news stories that we've been sort of writing about here and there, little pieces of, of information about the productions and stuff like that. Are you guys slowly getting more excited for the possibility of seeing, of returning to Pandora? Or are you still at that point where like you don't care and you'll have to wait until the final movie comes out before you're even remotely uh, interested in getting excited? Yeah, I couldn't care less. I've written several stories about Avatar and its sequels, and I still don't, I can't recall any of the characters off the top of my head, despite, you know, following this news and uh, trying to keep updated with it. I just, I, I can't bring myself to get excited about this 
the series, despite, you know, how the actors have been hyping it up, how James Cameron is trying all this new technology. Um, yeah, I just, I, I don't think that I will care unless the second, the sequel, like, completely wows me, because I just was not impressed by, I was impressed by the technology of the first film and how immersive it was, and I would actually be down for an Avatar, like, theme park, but as a movie, I was not impressed. We got to send you out to, I don't even remember what the official name of it is, but Avatar Land out in uh, in Orlando. Chris, what about you? What do you, where are you on the, <laughs> where do you fall in the Avatar spectrum right now? <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, from working at SlashFilm.com, I've learned not to outwardly dismiss entire things so soon, but, you know, the first Avatar made so much money, someone somewhere has to like it, right? I mean, it wouldn't have made that much money if people didn't like it, but I, I don't understand who is excited for this. I mean, maybe I'll be proven wrong when it comes out and it breaks all box office records, but I just feel like no one really cares about this anymore. I feel like it was very much a film of its time, and I just don't know what people you know even think of this anymore. I mean, maybe that'll change when the trailers come out and it looks amazing, but yeah, I, I can't tell you a single thing about that first movie that's like memorable like you know the plot is pocahontas basically and the characters i don't remember their names i i don't remember anything i just i saw it in theaters i didn't dislike it but i don't i don't get this this multi-sequel thing i'd rather james cameron made something else because that i'd be excited for that james cameron making a new movie but not avatar two through eight or whatever it is yeah i um man like titanic comes on tv all the time and my wife and i are always stopping and watching that movie and just getting sucked into the beauty of that filmmaking but every time avatar is on tv i just flip right through it like i never stop and watch even like two minutes in a row of avatar so i don't know i mean that's certainly <laughs> that's uh, hollywood is it's tapped into my personal viewing habits and making decisions based on that no they're they're clearly not but uh do what we say hollywood <laughs> yeah i don't know I, I mean i have learned never to underestimate james cameron though so i i suspect that we're going to be looking back on this as like wow that was a really weird period but uh now the avatar movies are like completely dominant like right back up there with star wars so i, I don't know we'll see if uh, if audiences agree but uh, and and people if you're out there listening and you are actually one of the few people who right now in 2018 is super excited about the avatar franchise write in and let us know at peter at slash film.com tell us why um and and uh, what you think about what these new movies are going to do um chris tell us about Trial of the Chicago 7. This is the movie that I've been writing about probably off and on for like eight to ten years, but I don't think we've actually talked about it on this podcast yet. Um, tell us about the latest with this film. Uh, yeah, so a little over ten years ago, Aaron Storkin wrote the script for this film, The Trial of the Chicago 7, which is based on uh, the trial of these political activists who were arrested after um, – a riot during the democratic convention in Chicago, uh, in 1969. And, um, so yeah, Aaron Sorkin wrote the script back, you know, a little over 10 years ago. And at the time, Steven Spielberg intended to direct it. And then it, for one reason or another, it just never got off the ground. Um, later Paul Greengrass was going to take over directing, but they couldn't agree on a budget. He, he, I guess he wanted too much money to make this, even though it's a courtroom drama. So I don't know why he would need all that money, but that's where it was. So Paul Greengrass left. And after that, 
it laid uh, dormant for a little while, but now it's it's back on. And uh, appropriately enough, Aaron Sorkin, who wrote the script, is now directing the film. It's going to be his his second directorial effort, having made his feature debut last year with uh, Molly's Game. So, HT, have you seen Molly's Game? I finally have. I saw it on a plane recently. And oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and I liked it. It was um, I have a a love hate relationship with Sorkin. I think he's a fantastic writer, but I do think that he tends to get help up his own ass sometimes, uh, especially when he has like ultimate power, like in, for example, HBO's The Newsroom, which became super preachy and uh, infuriating to me. But uh, I actually quite liked Molly's Game, even if I found his um, directing style to be like just fine. It wasn't something to to write home about, but he did mm-hmm. a good job, I think, as a first time director. Uh, so, Chris, knowing the history of this project, do you think this is the right uh, formulation of it? Do you think this is the right, you know, are, are all the pieces in place here? Do you think this is the one that's actually going to move forward? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. It sounds like they're they're trying to get this uh, going finally. I mean, I would probably be more excited if uh, Spielberg were still directing, but I mean, he'll be producing, so he's still involved. And I do really like Aaron Sorkin's dialogue. I do agree that he can be a little um, mansplainy, I guess is the term. But when he's not doing that, he's very good at dialogue. So I'm looking forward to see what he does. Cool. Uh, So there's one bit of casting news that I wanted to bring up, and I don't really have a ton to talk about here, but I just thought it was uh, a really um, inspired piece of casting. So Michael Keaton is going to be playing John McAfee, who is the tech giant who created McAfee antivirus computer software. Uh, There's a new movie coming out called King of the Jungle, where Michael Keaton is going to be playing McAfee and Seth Rogen is going to be playing a journalist who goes into the jungle to interview him. And I'll read you guys the um, the uh, plot synopsis here. This is based on the Wired magazine article called John McAfee's Last Stand. The film tells the wild true story of rogue tech magnate John McAfee, the creator of McAfee antivirus software, who cashed in his fortune, left civilization, and moved to the jungle in Belize. There, he set up a Colonel Kurtz-like compound of guns, sex, and madness. In the film, Wired Magazine investigator Ari Fuhrman accepts what he thinks is a run-of-the-mill assignment to interview McAfee, but once he arrives in Belize, he finds himself pulled into McAfee's escalating paranoia, slippery reality, and murder. So uh, that's a hell of a plot description. And... um, just the idea of uh, Michael Keaton, uh, presumably, you know, like wearing war paint and just going nuts in the jungle just kind of sounds amazing to me. Um, does anybody else? Have you guys read any of the stuff about McAfee over the past few years? Have you guys are no, you familiar with this? I had no idea that this happened. I yeah, I'm only familiar with McAfee through the McAfee uh, antivirus program and had no idea of the man behind it or his journey into an actual jungle in Belize. That's crazy and it seems yeah perfect for a movie starring michael keaton yeah apparently johnny depp was uh i guess lobbying to play the role of john mcafee but the real mcafee uh (laughs) did not want johnny depp to take that part and i guess he he got his way (laughs) yeah i don't know i'm not entirely he could be tweeting from the jungle i just saw a tweet that said that he uh he was really happy to hear that michael keaton got this role over Johnny Depp. So, um, Chris, what about you? Did you know anything about the story? You're looking forward to this movie? I, I had a vague awareness of the story. I am looking forward to the movie, especially with Michael Keaton involved, because uh, I love Michael Keaton. I love the idea of him going crazy on screen. So I think that'll be fun. 
Yeah, and Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, the writers behind uh, American Crime Story are writing the script for that. So anyway, I just wanted to bring that to people's attention, put it on your radar uh, in case you hadn't heard about that project yet. I'm just excited that uh, this could be the Oscar bid that for Michael Keaton that could finally win him that trophy after he was rudely snubbed uh, for Birdman, which I still remember that moment at the Oscars where he took his speech out of his pocket and then had to put it back in after Eddie Redmayne won instead for Theory of Everything. Oh, yes. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, I would not be surprised. It sounds like it could be a completely outrageous, like perfect, iconic Michael Keaton performance. So there's a lot of potential there. Uh, HG, let's talk about a movie called Into the Dark. Um, this one is in the works at Universal right now. It is a Thai cave rescue movie. HG, how many Thai cave rescue movies is too many? Uh Seven. Because <laughs> Is that how many we have right now? We currently have. Uh, Chris wrote a story about uh, two months ago that said that there were six Thai cave rescue movies that were in development, and now this would make it the seventh. So, yeah, this is still in very early development because Universal has um, acquired the film rights, but is a based on a book that has not yet been published. Uh, It's a book called Into the Dark uh, with the subtitle The Dramatic Story of the Thai Cave Rescue. And it's um, currently going to be published by Ballantine Books. And uh, Universal has currently had um, optioned the film rights, but as soon as that book is published, it will likely go into development and be the latest of seven Thai cave rescue movies. So we don't have any information about like writers or directors or anything like that at this point. Uh, the book well will be penned by journalist, author, and frequent TV pundit Ellis Hennekin, but nothing else regarding the movie. Yeah, just uh, yet another Thai cave movie. I mean, this is one of those things that it seems like an arms race, right? Like, I, I don't know how many of these seven are actually going to make it to the big screen, but I can't imagine that all seven do. Um, so we'll just have to keep our eyes on this and see <laughs> we'll see what happens there. Um, Chris, one of the next items that I wanted to talk about was a uh, the Twilight Zone reboot that is coming to CBS All Access has cast a lead actor for a very special episode. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, so Adam Scott, who uh, you'll all remember from Parks and Rec and a million other things, he seems to be in everything, has joined the the Twilight Zone reboot in an episode called uh, Nightmare at 30,000 Feet. And that will sound very familiar to Twilight Zone fans because one of the most famous Twilight Zone episodes, the original Twilight Zone, is Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, um, which stars William Shatner as this man who's uh, very afraid of flying and he's on a plane while it's in midair and he looks out the window and he sees uh, a gremlin on the wing. And this was um, recreated also in the, the Twilight Zone movie where John Lithgow played uh, the part of the man who sees the, the monster outside the plane. So we don't know 100% if this episode is going to be the same exact thing as that, but the fact that it's that title really suggests that it's either going to pay homage to that or it is going to be like a a, a modernized remake of that famous episode. So, Chris, I know that you are are not exactly the biggest fan of flying. Have you ever uh, looked out onto the window and and recreated this movie yourself? (laughs) No, I'm I'm afraid to look out the window. Um, I uh, when I the first time I flew in many years uh, last year, I guess it was, I deliberately got a window seat because I was like, oh, that'll make it better because I'll see where we are but that actually made it worse because i would just look out the window and i'd be like oh my god 
we're so high up, I'm definitely going to die. So it made it a, <laughs> a million times worse. So every time I've flown since then, I've made sure to get an aisle seat uh, as far away from the window as I possibly can. <laughs> uh, Adam Scott is such great casting for this. I mean, I think he has that sort of like everyman quality that uh, that this person needs. Like, you know, if you get somebody who's too manic to begin with, then you sort of are already, um, you know, there's nowhere to go really with that with that kind of personality. But somebody like Adam Scott, who has such a huge range, um, I, I think he's going to do really, really well with this. And I'm this is one of the the first pieces of casting, aside from Jordan Peele being like the narrator of like stepping into the Rod Serling role of this Twilight Zone show. This is the first piece of casting that's really got me excited about the show. I, it might be. Actually, is this the first piece of casting, period, Chris? Do we know if there are any other people attached to any other episodes of any other uh, news pieces like that come out? I am. I'm fairly certain this is the first official uh, casting we know about. Okay, well, they're definitely getting off to the right start then. Um, I, I hope that this this level of quality continues in their casting department. Um, okay, so our last story of the day, uh, we're going to step into the spoiler room for a minute and talk a little bit about Avengers 4. So... If anybody out there who's listening right now doesn't want to know anything at all about Avengers 4, stop listening now. Come back to us tomorrow. We'll see you later. Thanks for listening. Uh, but if you guys are okay with some, uh, I would say, very, very light spoilers, then uh, listen on. So, okay, final warning, spoilers for Avengers 4 right now. So uh, Brad wrote this article today uh, called Avengers 4 will bring another unexpected Marvel Cinematic Universe character back. And last week I, t I wrote a piece about how uh, the character of Crossbones, who is a Captain America villain who showed up in Winter Soldier, and I think he was in uh, Captain America Civil War as well. Uh, he's played by Frank Grillo. He is going to be coming back, according to Frank Grillo himself. The actor uh, gave up that information on a, a recent podcast episode, and he said he's going to be making an appearance in Avengers 4 in a flashback. And we, you know, in that piece, I was speculating about whether or not that actually means that he's really going to be showing up in a flashback or because there's been a lot of theories about Avengers 4 and maybe time travel being involved in some way, um, if that could factor in. And maybe he was just sort of covering for himself by saying that it was a flashback. And now uh, Brad wrote this piece today and uh, executive producer Michael Grillo, who is actually, as far as we can tell, not related to Frank. <laughs> uh, Michael Grillo is an executive producer on Avengers 4, and he uh, was talking about the shooting schedule for that movie and how really, I mean, it's got to be hugely difficult to get that massive ensemble cast together. And he his quote is, quote, when we got Tilda Swinton, she was just a one day availability, end quote. So that's our first indication that Tilda Swinton is going to be in Avengers 4. So she, uh, of course, played Stephen Strange's mentor, the Ancient One, in Doctor Strange in 2016. But in that movie, she was killed by uh, Kaecilius, I think is how you say his name, Mads Mikkelsen's character, the, the villain of that movie. So I just wanted to throw that out there to you guys and see what you are thinking about Avengers 4 at this point. I mean, I know that most of the actual plot, the hard uh, plot synopsis, the really like drilled down details are still being kept under wraps, which is pretty impressive for a movie of that size. But uh, what do you guys think about these returning characters? They're you know, relatively minor characters in the MCU. But um, are you worried about, uh, you know, characters like my big worry for Infinity War was there were going to be too many characters in that movie. And the idea of like hearing that uh, smaller characters like this are going to be popping up, even potentially in small roles. I'm kind of like, ah, do we need these characters? I don't know. What do you guys think? Um, Chris, let's start with you. 
Uh, yeah, there is always that worry that it's going to be too crowded, but I, I imagine that since she's only shooting one day, it's going to be a very brief thing. Maybe even like the, the red skull cameo in, uh, infinity war where he was only in like one quick scene, but I don't know. I mean, I like Tilda Swinton, so I don't mind her coming back, but I, uh, I don't know. I'm kind of like burned out on this. I, I, at this point, I just want it to come out because I'm sick of hearing about it. Like I'm every day, it's like, what's the title? What's going to be in Avengers? For? Like just, just release it at this point. Like Chris, just not a nerd, Evangelista. I'm sick and tired of this. Yes, exactly. <laughs> just uh, Ishi, what about you? What do you think about uh, uh, Tilda Swinton coming back? Um, I'm. Also of the opinion that it's going to be a probable time travel plot. Um, but I don't think it'll be um, an appearance that even is as long as Red Skulls in um, uh, Infinity War. I think it will be like a second. Um, maybe like you see all these characters go through their past timelines and just flashes by. And maybe it stops for like 10 seconds in one scene and that's when you see her speak and then that's it and it goes backwards and also forwards in time i would actually be down for that because i think that would be very visually appealing and um exciting so um that would be a cool possibility uh i mean we've also had casting for other characters who are rumored to be future versions of like young children that we've seen like cassie lang or um uh of like a possible introduction of like kate bishop for example Interesting. I had not heard about that. So oh, yeah, yeah that, from the Twitter that definitely... sphere, I'm going to relay it here. Um, the recent casting of Catherine Langford that we heard last uh, this Friday uh, in an unknown role. There's a lot of rumors that she's either playing an older Cassie Lang, which is um, Ant Man's daughter. Yeah. yeah, Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd's da- daughter. I can't. I like totally Scott Lang's daughter. There you go. Um, <laughs> Scott Lang's daughter, or an older version of Kate Bishop, who has not yet been introduced in the MCU, but is the uh, female version of Hawkeye. Hmm. hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So I, I mean, I. <laughs> obviously I don't have any big answers here. I just sort of wanted to throw that out there and, and again, sort of take your temperature on this movie and, and see where you guys are. Uh, Chris, it seems like you're pretty much over it at this point. Um, HT, are you, I mean, having uh, tracked all of this stuff, are you l- still in the excitement phase for Avengers four? Are you sort of uh, dampening on that as well? Yeah, I'm still excited. I'm still on the same boat as I was before. I'm not like, you know, in a frenzy, but I'm, I'm still looking forward to seeing this movie and how they will just wrap it all up. Yeah, I'm, it seems, it really does seem, I know they were marketing Infinity War as like the end of an era kind of thing, but mm-hmm. Avengers 4 really does seem like um, a huge moment in the MCU, like the closing of a door kind of thing. Um, and because of the James Gunn stuff and all of that, we don't really know what they're going to be doing beyond that. Uh, I think the studio has not officially announced a, a lot of their movies afterwards uh, are at, that are supposed to be coming out after Avengers 4, even though we know that they're in development. Um, and they, they must be working on them and, and pretty far along on some of them. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very curious to see how all this plays out. And uh, if you guys have any thoughts about any of this, feel free to uh, write us and, and let us know what you think at peter at slashfilm.com. You can find more about all the stories we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com. And uh, the show is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find at the site. Uh, You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in 
case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. And before we go, let's tell people where they can find more of our work online. Uh, HT, let's start with you. You can find me every day at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at HTranBuoy. And Chris? Uh, I'm also at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at CEvangelista413. You can find me at SlashFilm.com as well. I'm on Twitter at Ben Pears. That's going to wrap us up for today, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you tomorrow.